chapter 15, and I'll read today from verse 17. Luke chapter 15. I'm going to break in in the middle of the story this time so that the focus will be especially in the end. You know, we've, I know we've been reading this multiple times, and we're getting toward the end of the series now. This is part five. And I particularly want you to pay attention to this interaction at the end of the last few verses, 25 through 32. But remember, the, the young, there's two sons. A younger son basically told his dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my money. It was a very significant amount of money. He went, squandered his life away. He's utterly hungry and miserable and poor. And this is where we we pick it up. Verse 17. When this younger son, he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer the worthy, worthy to be called your son. Because to say his uh, practice speech. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But with the son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Uh, Let's pray for part five of our series. Lord, today we're naming this message the party of grace, a feast of grace. And that's that's what's happening in this passage, a party, a grand feast of welcome, of your grace to welcome lost sons and daughters home. And it is our longing that we would believe this. We believe this so much that that is what church would be. Church would not be primarily a religious building and religious rituals or a club of people gathering together, but it would be a feast, a party of welcome of your grace. So we pray that you would place 
your gospel so powerfully in us, you would take older brothers who guard the club and turn this place, turn our gathering into a party of grace. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My message in three parts. Part one, I'm going to call the cost of welcoming. Part two, I'm going to call the cost of the Father's welcome. And three, I'm going to call show not tell. Show not tell. To start this message, I'd like to tell you a little story. To read you a little parable. A parable which I hope will shed light on the parable that Jesus is teaching. Okay? And it's called the lighthouse story. It goes like this. On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea and with no thought for themselves, went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved, some of those who were saved and others and various others in the surrounding areas wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought and new crews trained. The little life-saving station grew. Some members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members and they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it as a sort of a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in this club's decorations, and there was a miniature lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them had black skin and some had yellow skin. The beautiful new club was in chaos. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities since they were unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. Hey, that's what we're called, a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of all the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. 
It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you revisit that seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. Interesting story, isn't it? The terrible story, isn't it? And I just told you a little story, which is the story of church history. <laughs> that is the story of church history. When young men go off to become pastors in seminary, they have to take this class called church history. I just gave you a summation of church history right there. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> you can go back a thousand years or 500 years. Sometimes the life-saving activity gets really Super duper, and that we call the Reformation. Okay? But um, that's, that was the story. Now, why am I telling you this? In this passage that Jesus t- tells a story, this whole story tells you who is God. He's a father. Who are the people that are being saved? Are they just people out there and... He has a task, and God is a grand do-gooder that likes to do nice things for people. That is not what the this, this story Jesus is saying. He is a father who desperately loves his children. Some of his children are idiots who take what the father has given them and dispenses with the father, and then he, they destroy their own lives. Sometimes they destroy their lives quickly, Sometimes they destroy their lives slowly. And every now and then, they get the clue, maybe I should go home. And God is like a father, and he will love me. Sometimes. But then, there are other sons. There are other sons. They're idiots of a different sort. They are home, and they think that they're home, but then they turn the home into a club. All the while, their father desperately misses his lost sons and daughters whom he cherishes. And I told you in this story that the, the father, what he did was when the younger son said, give me my inheritance, I wish you were dead, give me the money that's coming to me, the father literally had to take one third of his wealth, he had to cut up his wealth, He literally made himself one-third poorer because the older son is going to get two portions because the oldest son in this culture gets two portions and everybody else gets divided equally. So in this this case, there's only two sons. There'll be three-thirds. The oldest son gets two-thirds. The younger son gets one-third. But when the younger son comes home, if he is going to be received not as a slave, because this is what he thinks, I'm going to come home I just want to be home. I'm just so hungry. He doesn't expect to be loved as a son. He only just wants the scraps that the servants get. That's all he wants because he's so desperately hungry. So that if he comes home, he just is okay to be a slave, to be a servant. But the father has none of that. You are my son. And if he is going to make him a son, he, he has, the robe will be upon him. 
My name will be upon you. The ring will be upon you. But you know, something has to happen. The father then says, I can't just bring you in because if he, if he comes home, the whole village will think, there's the idiot. Everybody hates his guts. He is dirty. He is messed up. We have to clean him up. That's the way they look at him. Maybe we can despise him. But the father has to go out and say, here's the robe, here's the ring, and now he has to have a ceremony. He has to have a grand party and a feast and say, everybody, look, this guy's not a slave. He's the son. Don't you dare treat him as anything less than my son because I love him. I honor him. I cherish him. But in order for that to happen, the father's going to have to throw the party. He is... He will need to do this. He'll have to do something so grand like kill the fattened calf and incur great costs himself. The part is going to cost him. But there's something else in this thing too. The story is saying he has sons. One idiot son is wrecking his life, but now there's another foolish son. If he's really a son, the son, the older son will help throw the party. The older son will be the master of ceremonies. The older son will run the party so that the father can greet his guests and say, welcome to my party. My son has come home. But so when this story in this culture, as soon as he says the older son is outside of the party, everybody will immediately go, what's going on here? (laughs) If he's really a good son, his son will run the party. His son will will make sure all the the servants and all the refreshments are there and all the music and all the dancing, it will be to to the max, just as his father wants. But if his son is outside of the party, everybody will immediately know there's something deeply wrong with that boy. What is wrong? As soon as Jesus starts telling this story, they're going to go, oh my goodness, what is wrong with that, that older guy? And you know, this is the church. The church is not filled with sons and daughters who want to run the party, who want to run the feast, to call home the younger sons and daughters. Instead, because that is tiring. They have to run the party. They have to throw the party. They have to get the refreshments. And you know, you can say in this, there's, within the story, there's some who would hear the story and they're going to go, oh, that older son, he's an idiot too. But some will hear the story and immediately they will sympathize with the older son because they'll realize if soon as the father welcomes home the younger son, you know what's going to have to happen? All of the wealth, will, again, one-third of the wealth will have to go to the younger son as well and it will cost. It will cost the older son. It will cost him his time and his energy to throw this party. It will cost him, he's going to have to pay for the refreshments and set up up the room for for the dancing and for the food. And when the younger son comes home, in order to receive his brother, it's going to cost him. Because now, all of the wealth is his father and his son. They all hold it together. But as soon as 
the younger son comes home, it's going to cost the older son another one-third of his wealth to receive him. So you see, the cost is not only to the father. There is great cost incurred to the son. And the reason why the older son, one of the reasons anyway, why the older son doesn't want to show up at the party is because it's going to, it's, it's going to hurt his pocketbook. It's going to hurt his standing. He's, it's going to greatly inconvenience him. That's the cost. And you know, a lot of times, we, there are people who like church, but our reasons for liking church are very impure. Are they not? Especially if you come into the church for a while, at the end of the day, we are all kind of selfish and lazy, and we like things to be convenient, and we like the things that we go to to serve me. And all of the things in our kind of consumeristic capitalistic society, all the institutions that are so-called successful attract customers and customers show up to be served. That's what they show up. Customers show up not to serve and to incur costs. They say, I gave you this X amount of money. You give me the services and the goods that I want. I expect it to be at my convenience to be served. And when we show up at church, we can't help. We have this habit of being customers Everywhere else in life. And in our society, churches run like businesses. And the most successful churches attract the most customers. And guess what? The churches often work for the people in here. But I've shared this with you sometimes, a lot of times. The church is the one institution on this planet that was actually invented for its (laughs) non-members. Right? That's really weird. It is really weird. The church was invented for its non-members. And the church ultimately is supposed to be this, a feast and a party thrown to receive and welcome poor, tired, broken people, utterly hungry, who've wrecked their lives. And maybe they'll say, well, I meet God here. What do they have for me here? They say, God can be met here. And when they come in, are they supposed to come in where a bunch of people will say, come in, you're dirty, don't come into the building, there's a shower outside, we'll fix you up in the shower, and then we'll clean you up, and then you can come into the church. No. The church is, they'll come in, and they'll be shocked to find out, here is a feast. Here is a party. Here we are glad and celebrating because we are glad you're home. Because God, our Father, is so happy to receive you and love you. That's the church. That's the church. And in order for the church to have that, some people have to pay for it. Some people have to show up and do the welcoming. Some people have to do the music. Some people have to speak the words of welcome. Some people have to express the Father's heart. That's what it is. And as long as the older brothers stay outside of the party, there will be no church, there will be no feast, there will be no welcome. And younger brothers will come home to what? To a desolate place 
and the church will be religion and duty. And you stink here. So let's clean you up outside there. That's what people will feel when they come up. That's welcoming. That's the cost of welcoming. Now let me go to part two of my message. A lot of the times when I preach the gospel, I preach the gospel primarily to tell people that you are lost and Jesus Christ has paid. But let me, let me say the gospel a little differently today. The gospel is the Father radically loves people to be His children. Let me tell you something. I'm a father. I don't love you, you, and you, and you as much as I love Hudson, Laura, and Elizabeth. It just is, right? If you got sick, maybe I'll take you to the hospital, but I won't pay the bills, all right? If you are dying in the hospital, maybe I'll visit you once or twice. But if Hudson is dying in the hospital, if, it could, if it's anywhere possible, I will be there night and day. And the moment he wakes up, I will be there. I'll be there. That's what a father, that's how a father feels. That's how a father thinks about his children. That is how God looks at his children. This is the beginning of the gospel. (laughs) For you to begin to understand the gospel, God is a father. When his children are hungry and lost, that's all he thinks about. You understand? That's all he thinks about. That is what he cares about. That is what he desperately, desperately cares about. And if some of his children are at home and they're in good shape and they are not sick and they are being loved by him, it's not that he doesn't love them. He's already saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. All that is mine is yours. But the thing that grieves him, the thing that pains him, the thing that preoccupies him is this, is the sons who are not home, that are dying and hungry. That is the beginning of the gospel. And he will pay whatever cost he'll take. He will split his kingdom apart. And then you know what he'll say? He'll say, he, what the gospel says is he turns to his son. And he says, son, all that is mine is yours. Is that not true? All that is the father is the son. According to the Bible, all that is mine is yours. Is true, is, but these other, my other son is lost. Will you pay? Will you let your inheritance, your kingdom, be split apart? And will you pay the price to throw the party, to throw the feast, so that they can come home? And you know what the son said. The son said, yes, dad, I see you. I see you grieving. I see you hurting. And I grieve and I hurt. My brothers and my sister are not home. I will go and I will pay. And so the son of God left home 
And he made himself poor. And he was spat upon by the lost sons. And when they crucified him, he said, Please forgive them, Father. And the father did not just kill a fattened calf. He killed the Lamb of God. And the Lamb of God, the son said, I will be the Lamb. That is the gospel. And so that I can throw the party, I can run the party, I can run and I will found the church, which is the party. And grace, grace, grace will flow out there and call home. I will call them home. Jesus says, I will call them home. And your sons and my brothers and sisters will come home to you, Dad. That's the gospel. But when he does that, this is what he does. When all the sons and daughters come home. So you come home and you are called not to be a slave, not to be a servant. He'll say, you are my son. And all the sons and daughters, what they do is Jesus First, he washes you. Then he puts on you his robe. Then he gives you his ring because he has paid with his blood his life. He invites you in. And then you know what he does? Then he says, let me place in you my heart of sonship. And then you will share my heart. That's the gospel. That's really the full gospel. And if you come into the party and if you taste of this grace from that came from the Father's love through the grace of Jesus and into your life, then you are invited, not because you have to, not because you are a slave, not because you are a duty, you are invited to help throw the party. That's Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus incurred costs to throw a party for us. As soon as we come home, then we are invited to be a part of the party and get to throw the party, not because you have to, because you're a slave, but because you get to, because you are sons and daughters. It is your joy. It is your, you get to, when you throw that party, you know what you get to taste? You get to taste the full brunt of all your privilege to be your son. Because the son will weep when his brother comes home. The son will be the first to embrace him. And because it's the son who is saying, I get to embrace you first, he will taste the full depths of what it means to be a child. That's part of what you get. That's what you get. And when we are here in the church, I feed you the gospel. Ultimately, for all those of you who have been in the church, I feed you the gospel so that this will be in your heart and all of your life. The grace not only for you to have been received to come home, the grace where you will want to welcome and receive your brothers and sisters home. That is what we do here. So that the grace... For you to want to receive brothers and sisters home, you will have that grace in you, so bubbling in you, you will willingly incur the cost. A cost which you may sometimes feel is large, but the, the oldest son, Jesus, 
He already paid the biggest cost. And we will remember, all that is this is ours. What cost is there? And you will taste of the great riches to receive your brother and sister's home. That's, that's what we do here. Now, to close out the sermon, I'm going to do what I'm going to call show, not tell. Okay? Look, you, you, show, you come to church, and the guy up front, what does he got? What does he got? He primarily has words. And you know what the gospel is? It's words. But the words are a window into seeing something so incredible and so glorious. People show up at church and they go, it doesn't look like a party to me. It doesn't seem like a feast to me. It just looks like ritual to me. It looks like do-gooderism to me. It looks like social club along the shores, not a life-saving station. That's what it looks like to me. So, you know, what I, what I just do in one little way or another is show, not tell. Show you. Try to show you. So I'm going to try to tell you three brief stories to help show you right? what I see, what I know. This is the party of grace. First story. At my last church, at our church in Philadelphia. Now many, so if you've been in our church, you may have heard this story a while back. I'm going to retell it in a slightly different way too. Our community group, we had community groups at that church. Our community group, our community groups, all the community groups in the church would serve, they would rotate and serve to run um, our food pantry ministry. Our church had a food pantry ministry. That church was in a relatively poor neighborhood and there were people in the neighborhood who sometimes would run out of food. And once a week, I was on, at that church, I was on a Tuesday, what you would do is the community groups would show up, they would all bring various kinds of soup and we would serve essentially a kind of soup dinner. And you wouldn't think that eating soup is, would be a filling dinner, but once there's five different types of soups and a couple different types of bread, it actually would produce a kind of filling dinner. So each family household would bring a different soup. And varying, various people who were, were hungry in the community would come into our church. The ministry was the community group would to serve the soup and eat and welcome the hungry in the community. And then they would go into the next room and the the leader of the ministry would share a quick gospel presentation and then give them bags of food that they could take home. And there was one day when our ministry, our small community group did this ministry, a very memorable person came into our church uh, to eat. This guy came into the church he was very tall. He was probably about 6'2", 6'3", and lean. But the thing that made him memorable was that he had some lipstick on and he wore women's pants and he wore kind of women's pumps. So from kind of like the, the, the shirt up, he dressed like a man. But from his hips down, he dressed like a woman and he had some lipstick on. And he sat down and guess what will happen? So he made everybody uncomfortable. He made a lot of people uncomfortable. And you could 
tell that he was probably homeless. He smelled a little bit. And he was not well cleaned. Right? And he sat at one table, and not too many other people went to go sit at that table. And so I and one or two of the other members of our community group, we, you know, because what you do is you first serve your various soups, and people would come and receive soup, and then they would sit at the tables. And then after you served, you would go and, you know, we would go and, you know, various families would go and sit. And so I and one or two of our brothers, we went and go, sat with this man. And he had a look of misery on his face, of great misery and pain on his face. And after that day was over, um, you know, we tried to talk to him and he would give us these little one-word answers, right? And then after a while, he left. I don't even think he went to the, the gospel presentation and he did not receive a bag full of food. He just left, right? He left before even that portion was over. And after it was over, I emailed a pastor friend of mine who, works, who, reg- who, who, who worked in a church in Queens, New York, which was a poor neighborhood. And he regularly... Um, encountered people that were especially poor, and at times he worked with people who were cross gestures and so forth. And so, so this was a pastor friend of mine, so I asked him his advice, how can we minister to somebody like him? And he said to me, he goes, first of all, he said, you shouldn't just look at his the women's clothes, because a lot of times people immediately look at him and think, well, he's a cross gesture, and that's probably why he's sad and miserable. Right? He said, actually, the fact that he wears women's, the, 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 he put on women's clothes that morning, that probably made him happy. That might have actually made him feel good about himself. For almost everything in his life makes him feel miserable, but that actually made him feel good. And you don't know why he was sad that day. Maybe he got sad news from his family, or maybe something happened to one of his friends, and maybe that's why he looked sad and miserable that day. And so, Basically, he was just saying, welcome him as a human being and just treat him with welcome and kindness. Don't try to do the Jesus thing on him. First, just welcome. And you know, about three months later, three months later, you know what? He came to church on Sunday morning during service. I saw him in service. So the room was filled with people and I saw him. Like about, you know, 10 rows up, I saw him in service. And before service was up, he left. Right? And I noticed him. And, you know, that day too, he was sort of kind of halfway dressed as a woman and and he left. And later on, um, the person who received him, I, I found out that the person who welcomed him was... The person was a, there was a, a woman in our church who actually had a relationship with him. And she had a very broken past. And she ran a, a special ministry that was started by our church. Our church had a thrift shop that she started. And she started this church. So about a couple blocks from our church, she started a thrift shop. And our church would gather in you know, various you know, good items that people didn't need anymore. And they would sell them to the community at very low cost, and that would be, it became sort of, um, that, that became, she became a kind of ambassador to our community. And that thrift shop started to do really well. 
And in times, he started to come into the thrift shop and she would treat him with kindness. And over time, she learned his name. She learned a bit about his story. And then she began to invite him to the party of grace, which was our worship service. And so she told me about him. She's like, oh, his name is this. I forget. I wish I remember his name. This is his name. This is a little bit of his story. And every now and then he comes to the thrift shop and he gives me jewelry. (laughs) That's what she says. He gives me some jewelry that he found. And actually, actually, she actually said, oh, this is one of the earrings that he gave me. And she was wearing it. And she had a very interesting past. She, at one point, I think she had had an abortion. She had, she had had pregnancy out of wedlock. She had wrecked her life at some point before she had come to the Lord. But now she, she, you know, she was a thriving mom and she was running this ministry. Right? And when she told me that she would just love on him and welcome him, I remember the day that he came into church. I, I remember that day like yesterday. I remember the day he came into church. And the day he came into church was like this. Because at our church, we, we proclaim the gospel every week. And we proclaim the love of the Father every week. Right? And I remember the day he came to church. And I remember her name was Jennifer. Jennifer, Jennifer Nicolades who welcomed him. And I thought, here she is. That's the party of grace. That's one story. Okay. Let me give you a second story. Um, many of you know that my parents run a care home for the elderly. And my brother and I, at varying times when, in, when we were growing up, we lived in, with the care home. The one that my parents um, have had for many years, and they just recently, you know, they're retiring, they recently closed it, um, is, a, is a care home in East San Jose. It's in a poor neighborhood. And many of the people that my parents came for were the poor elderly. You know, they weren't the well-to-do elderly. Right? They were the poor elderly, and some of them were mentally ill. So my brother and I grew up with the, the poor and sometimes, honestly, crazy, <laughs> all right, um, elderly. And many of them, of course, did not go to church. They did not have cars. They had no means of going to church. And my, my mom and dad had compassion on them. They're saying, how can they hear about God and God's word and God's love and God's grace and the gospel if they do, don't get any worship? And so my dad, many years ago, used to take a class at a local school here that was called San Jose Christian College. He took a class and he met a gentleman there um, by the name of, uh, I forget his first name, his last name was Waymer, right? He used to be, he was a tall Caucasian gentleman who used to be a missionary in Korea. And my father hit it off with him. And my father asked him, would you come to my care home and lead a worship service? And the man said, yes. So he and his wife would started to come. So my parents, my father plays piano, so he bought this keyboard. And it wasn't as fancy as the stuff that we got now, but it was a little cheaper. So he bought this keyboard, and he got a little stand. And my father you know, found a, uh, an old hymn book, and he photocopied it, and he made me put together this little hymn book. right? And we still have them. And I put together a, like a, a hymn book of 25 old classic hymns. And my father would play the keyboard, and then Mr. Waymer, Pastor Waymer, would preach and tell of God's love. He would tell the old story of the gospel. 
And we would sit there, and I remember thinking, who's going to come to church? <laughs> and every Sunday, a certain, there's, my parents were, I think, licensed for about 26 people. About 10 to 12 of these poor elderly would come. So it was held right there in the dining room. So I was in this dining room and had weird smells of weird American food that I didn't like. I was like, what, what, what the heck was for breakfast? Whatever was for breakfast, you got to smell. <laughs> and it would, so you sit at these dining tables and, and Pastor Waymer would preach. And he was a good preacher. He wasn't an awesome preacher, but he, would, he had a really simple way to tell you about God. Right? And my dad would, you know, on this keyboard, and there was an, there was an old man that was at the care home, and his name was Joe, right? I don't remember his last name. Joe was probably in his 80s, and Joe was a tough old cuss of a man, right? Joe was probably about maybe 5'7". He was a little shorter than probably how tall I am. I remember him being a relatively short man, but he was a tough old guy. And the reason, and I think he was a sailor. He used to be in the Navy. And the reason I knew that is because he had a big old, like, anchor. He, had, like, he literally had, like, a Popeye-type anchor tattoo on his arms. And he was tanned because the way Joe spent his day was Joe would take a, a broom, and there's, like, a little courtyard. There's a courtyard area, and he would sweep up the leaves. And he would spend the whole day, and it was a large area and he would do that every day he would sweep up the leaves and then he would toss them out he would do that every day he would spend the whole day he would he would wake up in the morning eat breakfast sweep leaves every now and then take a break to to smoke a cigarette then he would sweep leaves then have lunch he was kind of a loner he didn't really talk to other people joe was not mentally ill he was all there and most of this day, he had this kind of mean, gruff demeanor. And if you talk to him, and at that time, I was, I was in, in, uh, in seventh grade, and my brother was in fifth grade, and every now and then we would try to talk to the elderly, and Joe would say, get out of here, beep and beep, little nips. Because <laughs> he was white, and he would say racist stuff to us. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And he, he would shoo us away, and, and, and we'd go. And my mom would basically say, Joe is a mean old man. Right? You probably don't want to talk to him. And we, re- we found out real fast Joe's a mean old man. And he had this kind of gruff, angry face all the time. And there was one time when Joe, because his, his room was a little further off from where he was working, he leaned over and he unzipped his pants and he took a leak in the bushes. And my mom saw him take a leak in the bushes and she ran out of the dining room and she went up to him and said, Joe, don't do that. <laughs> right? Go to your own, go to the own house and, 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 and pee inside like you, you should. And, and he starts going, he got really angry. And he started cussing at my mom. Then he starts saying like racist stuff to her. It's like, who the heck's going to do this stuff? This place needs to be kept clean. And you going to do this? And my mom said, I never asked you to do this. She's, and my mom was tough too. She just come right. I never asked you to do this. You don't, because like, you don't have to do this. Like, I think it's great that you just, you do a great job. It's fantastic. But if you, if you, if you need to pee, go inside the house. But if you, if you don't want to, I, don't do this. I'm going to, I'm going to kick you out of doing this. And he, and he'd be like, they've been at this. And he's 
angrily walked back to the house. <laughs> hmm? And then later in the afternoon, he continued doing the sweeping. And then, you know, it kind of, and then he cooled off. But every Sunday, my mom and dad would call Joe to church, say, Joe, stop sweeping. Come worship God. And Joe had this hat, this grungy, nasty hat, because he only showered probably like once or twice a week, and, but he would wear the hat the whole day while he playing. And he would walk into church, and he would take the hat off. And I still remember this. Joe, this mean guy who would say racist stuff to us, take his hat off, and his whole face would change. His whole face would change. And he, and he would walk in kind of with, with, a, with a sense of hu- hum- humility. This place where he would eat his meals and right outside where he would smoke his cigarettes, he would come in and he would come in with humility because he knew he needed God. And I don't know if Joe ever processed the gospel or what he knew about Jesus. All I know is he knew he needed God. And for 30 minutes, Joe's face would change and you would see rest on his face. I remember this. So this poor, this dining hall in a poor neighborhood. And I sat there. I remember this. This is what I remember as a seventh grade boy watching Joe come in. That's the party of grace. That's grace. I think back to all the work that I had to do. And I remember grumbling. My dad said, I want you to make this hymn book. So I, I drew this cross on it, and I tried to make it look sort of neat, and I had to like, and I remember thinking, well, I have to do this, right? But then, and, and when I look back to that, that very entitled, selfish seventh grade boy who looked at old Joe as a racist, grumpy, mean old man, I remember his face like this yesterday. The party of grace. Let me close with one more story. What do I do what I do? I consider it a tremendous honor to be a pastor. I don't do this for the money. Come on. Right? I do this in the off chance that somebody will come into this place. They will go from elder brother to elder brother who walks in, who thinks he's being a servant, who's angry that he has to put together hymn books and pay his money to throw this thing. And he'll go from that to being a son, like Jesus. I do this so every Sunday I tell myself, Don't be an entitled older brother. Maybe your younger brother will come home today and you could receive him and he will meet Jesus and know the love of the Father. That's what I hope for. That is why I do this. That's why I preach. That's why I do bishop. That's why I get exhausted certain days. That's why I do this. Okay? And it's worth it. And every now and then, the party spills out. And it gets so worth it. 
And I call that getting paid. (laughs) That's what I call it. And that is the grace part. Because grace is from God, and it is supernatural. And nobody else can give this to you. There's no other way to taste it. There's no other ways to get it. And it's worth it. And just to tell you this last story, um, and I hope it doesn't embarrass you, Anna, because it has to do with you. Um, there are certain, I have, like, since I've been the pastor here for four plus years now, and I have, there are certain memories that I cherish in these past four plus years. And I'll, there's two, and they both have to do with Anna. One, one of them is this. The day that Anna gave her testimony up here and told us that there was a time when she almost, she let her hands go and she almost committed suicide and she came home to Jesus. The day that Anna was received into the church and her face wept, I wept. But I have a little bit of a different um, um, vantage point from this because I remember when Anna was in high school. Um, but I have a, a, another interest. I have a different vantage point to this because Anna's older brother. So in, you know, we're talking older brother and younger sister here now, right? So in Anna's older brother is Young Kim, and Young Kim is a pastor. And Young Kim is one of my closest friends in the whole world, right? And when I hang out with Young, we talk about the people that we care about, and every now and then. And he talks about you, right? And Grace and I, we go hang out with Young and Christy, and they would talk about how it grieves them that Anna was lost, right? And this is, this is my other vantage point. Young once told me the story of when Anna came home from college and said to her dad and to her, to him, you, you made me go to church and you brainwashed me with all this God stuff. But now I went off to college and then I found the real thing. And then, and I remember saying, and he said, and Young was saying, and when my dad and I heard her say that thing, that was, that was, that was really hard. That was so hard. That was a really painful day. And I remember sitting there listening to that story thinking, Wow. Like, there's so many kids who grow up in church and they think we're brainwashing them with the God stuff, but actually college is the place where they're really getting brainwashed. That's the, that's the crazy part of it. Where they get, they get to hear the stupid so-called wisdom of man when the foolishness of God is what they really need. And Christy would sometimes tell me, Annie would show up and she would just hang out and she would come to their house, and she would act like an entitled teenager. (laughs) But after she got saved, she came over to their house, right? And young and Christian, and she would start to love on their kids, and she would have the joy of the Lord, and she would start talking about sermons and things that she was experiencing in God. And young and Christy would have this look of straight awe, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they'd have this look as they would tell me these things. Like, I still remember Young and Christy telling me, so this was Christy's look. They would say, when she would show up after she got saved, we would look, turn to each other after she would go to bed and go, who the heck are you? <laughs> who is this person? 
And they would be so happy. Their joy on their face would be so happy because their sister came home. And I got to see their face. So I got to see Hannah home. And I got to see literally her older brother and his wife receive her home. And that's payday. That's payday. That's the party of grace. That's what we do here. Okay? And if you will be willing to get out of the smallness of your life and the smallness of your story and the entitlement of your elder brotherishness, you will get payday. You get the taste of the party of grace and you too will get payday. That's what we do here. It'll sometimes happen here. Sometimes it'll happen in community group. Sometimes it'll happen somewhere else, like in Santa Clarita, like for me. That's what we do here. Let's pray. We are so grace poor. We think we've received your grace, but we've received barely a drop. But if we were to drink even a small little cupful of your grace, would we not run to the party? Would we not gladly throw the party? Would we not wish we could spend more money and more time and more energy in those moments when our brothers and sisters come home so that along with you, Father, an older brother, Jesus, we would embrace them because you have embraced us, first embraced us. So as we go to your table now, Lord, just put this grace so deep in us, it would overflow into a party, a feast of welcome. In Jesus' name.